Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires Well, good morning. I just want to say welcome to everyone here and those who are watching us online. We are launching a new series today called All In. Uh, this series is about commitment. It's about the amazing power of commitment in human life. Uh, it's about the nobility of being a commitment-making, commitment-honoring, commitment-keeping human being. Uh, but I understand we live in a keep your op- options open, always have an exit strategy, never get tied down world. Uh, commitment can be a real scary word. Uh, sometimes even uh, commitment to very small things. Uh, maybe you have conversations like this with your adult children. Uh, do you want to join us for dinner tomorrow night? Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. You know, just underneath that is, I might get a better offer. Um, Then if I'm committed to you, I would be missing out on that, and I don't really want to miss out on that. Um, Or it could be a bigger deal. Do you want to get married? I don't know. I might get a better offer. Do you want to commit to God? Do you want to commit to generous living or tithing? Do you want to commit to serving? Do you want to commit to a small group? Do you want to make a commitment that even if, you, if when you do get married, um, you'll only marry someone who shares your own faith? Uh, do you want to voluntarily commit a chunk of your time in the unglamorous service of under-resourced people? Now, I get that making a commitment can be scary because a commitment is a promise about the future, but in the future, things might change. What if I promise to marry you, but I change? What if I promise to marry you, but you change? What if I promise to be your friend, but we have a fight and I don't really feel close to you? What if I promise to follow God, but tomorrow I don't feel like following God? What if tomorrow I feel like there's not really a God? There's another word for uncommitment. Uh, It's a word we all love. Uh, It's a word that we obsess over in our culture. It's the word free. I just want to be free. And what the commitment phobe really has is FOMO, uh, fear of missing out. Uh, They're afraid of missing out on something. As long as I'm not committed, then I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to see whoever I want, eat whatever I want, buy whatever I want, say whatever I want, experience anything I desire. And the way to be free, according to conventional wisdom, is whatever you do, avoid commitment. Don't be committed. But there's a minority opinion. Uh, In this minority opinion, commitment makers will experience a kind of freedom that a commitment avoider will never know. Uh, The Christian writer G.K. Chesterton wrote a fabulous essay where he said, the man who makes a vow makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. In that act of commitment, I bind myself to that future moment. I'm not free to love another woman. I'm not free to spend my money however I please. I'm not free to follow another God. 
And yet somehow those commitments lead to a deeper freedom than all the options and escape clauses in a commitment-phobic world. It's the commitment maker who gains freedom to love and to grow and to experience community and meaning. The commitment avoider becomes a slave to whatever desire comes along, to a life of small, petty sins. This minority opinion got expressed a long time ago. Uh, It was Jesus who put it like this. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, if you commit yourself to obedience that will actually lead you into the freedom to be the person that God created you to be. If you think you're free to do whatever you want, you'll end up a slave to sin. And some of us need to just reflect on that truth for a moment. You see, making a commitment, even though it's hard, is nothing to be afraid of. Making the right commitment in the right spirit, to the right obligation or assignment or value or person is one of the most noble things a human being can do. And the reason we're drawn to make commitments is that we alone, of all the creatures God made, were made in the image of a commitment-making, commitment-keeping God. Only human beings can do this. Only human beings can make a promise. Only a human being can say, I will meet you next Tuesday. I will serve on that team with you. I will keep that secret. I'll be your friend. I'll pray for you. You can count on me. I'll have your back. You know, a dog can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and they would die to keep it, but they can't. A a cat can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and they would break it, you know, and then they would laugh at you with their quiet way that they have. People who follow God are commitment makers, because we were created in the image of a commitment-making, commitment-keeping God. And really, God is the one who sets the standard for commitment. He sets the standard for a few uh, reasons. The first is God never enters a commitment in a casual way. I mean, God never makes a quick promise and for convenience sake and then says to himself later, what was I thinking? God thinks very carefully about the promises that he makes that he's committing himself to. He never enters into a commitment in a casual way. And then secondly, only God makes a commit. Once God makes a commitment, uh, God never goes back on his word. It doesn't matter what the cost. It doesn't matter how inconvenient. Uh, God has never failed to honor a single commitment. God has never forgotten a single promise. God has never broken a single vow. The apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. But I think the third and most striking thing about our commitment-making God is that God is faithful even though the people he has committed himself to are continually breaking their promises. Think about this. We get in trouble and we, we repent and we commit to change. And then when the pain lets up, when the trouble goes away, we sometimes will turn around and forget our commitments and break our word to each other and to God. But even then... God never slips one degree from total trustworthiness. Uh, God is incapable of bad faith. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
God sets the standard for commitment. I will keep my commitment to you no matter what. God is a commitment-making, commitment-honoring, commitment-keeping God. And that's why people who follow God are commitment-makers. And not just that, people who follow God make what look like from the outside outrageous commitments. And sometimes they do it with fierce joy. Uh, We're going to look at one such person today. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the incredible power of commitment in our financial lives, in our relational lives, and in our spiritual lives. So three commitments that will change your life. Um, In the book of the Old Testament called 1 Kings, there's a prophet named Elijah, and he's coming to the end of his ministry, and he's looking for a replacement. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 oxen, 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? This is a very, very dramatic moment. Um, Elijah is an old man. He's standing in the field. There is plowing going on. Uh, He lets 11 pair of oxen go by, and then he walks up to Elisha, and he takes off his cloak. His cloak is a symbol of his calling or of his office, of his life's work, and he throws it around Elisha. And the meaning would be very clear. Uh, Elisha, God has a job for you, and you're going to have to leave all of this. Uh, Now, this passage leaves out a lot of details that I would want to know if I were going to take a job like this. Uh, like, Like, what's the health plan like? Like, how many weeks of vacation do I get? Uh, If Elisha is going to be a prophet and Elijah already is a prophet, will there be kind of a a prophet sharing plan or something? Uh, What we do know... (laughs) Thanks. What we do know... uh, uh, Lisa Harrington is like the queen of puns, and I know that she would have loved that one. Um, What we do know, the first service hissed at me. That was the first time anyone has ever hissed at me, so I took it to that level. Um, What we do know is Elisha has 12 pair of oxen, um, and what this means is that um, in that economy, Elisha is a person of staggering wealth. Um, In other words, he has options. He has possibilities. He has a bright future. He's the golden boy. He can, uh, you know, marry any girl in the village and leave all of that and attach himself to a penniless preacher and face a life of opposition and danger and sacrifice? Seriously? Like, what if a better option comes along? There's this very dramatic moment. Elisha has one request. He says, let me go kiss my mother and father goodbye, and then I'll come to you. Uh, And this is reasonable, but Elijah's response seems quite edgy. Uh, Go ahead, what have I done to you? And you can kind of uh, hear the wheels turning in Elijah's mind. I bet if he runs home to mommy and daddy, they'll remind him of the trust fund. They'll uh, give him the keys to the car, the vacation home, and he'll bail. We'll probably never see him again. Now, Elijah does something very important. He gives Elisha the space to make the commitment himself. No pressure, no manipulation, you must decide. And a good church will do that with people when it comes to God and commitment. You must decide. And Elisha does. Elisha decides to say yes to God. 
And Elisha comes back and he says to Elijah, I'm all set. There's just one thing I have to do. I love this. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he, then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. He burns the plow. Do you get it? I mean, that's significant. He comes back to Elijah. He is all in and he says, well, what should I do with these oxen? He kills them. The oxen don't really like that part of the story. Um, the idea here is he's going to offer a sacrifice to God that represents, that expresses that he's really offering his life as a sacrifice to God. And then he decides to turn this sacrifice into a party, and he gives all the meat to all the people. I mean, do you have any idea how many people you can feed with two oxen? I mean, just the side of beef is enormous. And I got to tell you, one of the best things you can do if you really are serious about keeping a commitment, is to go public with it. And Elisha is going public with his commitment big time. If kissing his parents goodbye and killing his oxen and offering the sacrifice and going public isn't enough for him, he does one more thing. He burns the plow. You know what this means? It means there's no going back. I cannot return to my old life. I've burned the plow. When Elijah leaves him and Elisha is all alone, I can't go back. I've burned the plow. When a bunch of boys mock him, which they will, and he calls a bear out to chase them and maul them, he thinks, you know, I'll never be the man of God that I'm supposed to be. I'll never get this right. But he says to him, I can't go back. I've burned the plow. When the king wants to kill him, when the Arminians surround him, when the famine is starving him, when Israel rejects him so utterly that he weeps at his failure, the one thing he knows is I can't go back. I've burned the plow. That way of life is cut off from me. There's no retreat. I mean, that's commitment. Plow burning commitment. Some of you will know about this. In 1519, a conquistador, Hernan Cortez, landed in Veracruz in Mexico to win glory in the new world. And he came from Spain with 500 soldiers and 100 sailors in 11 ships. And when they landed, they were filled with uncertainty and fear. You know, this is the new world. Uh, some of them wanted to go back. And he gave an order to his men, burn the ships. In other words, going back is not an option. We will succeed or we will die. We will flourish or we will perish. Burn the ships. We are committed. There's no running away from this. Now, this story gets told a lot. It's kind of a good uh, motivational speaker story. Uh, but because we're in church and the truth is a big deal for us, I have to say a couple things about this. Uh, they didn't actually burn the ships. They sank the ships, and they left one ship intact to bring treasure back to Spain and maybe bring back a few leaders if it didn't all work out. Uh, it turns out that Cortez wasn't all that nice to the Aztecs, uh, the people who were already living in the New World. And that's important because we're not called to glorify commitment. Um, if commitment is attached to the wrong thing, it can do a lot of damage. If a football player has an overpowering commitment to win the Super Bowl at whatever the cost, but a non-commitment to obey God or honor his wife, if a business person has an unquenchable commitment to success, but a quenchable commitment to his family, well, that's actually idolatry. Ultimate commitment to a non-ultimate value is idolatry. 
But when a human being makes an outrageous commitment to a noble calling from a worthy God, when an ordinary human being says, I don't care how hard it gets, I don't care how high the cost, I'm not going back. I'm not turning around. I've charbroiled the ox. I've kissed off the trust fund. I've given up the keys. The ships are smoking in the harbor. I've burned the plow. I mean, that's when power gets released on this earth beyond human capacity. So Blue Oaks, I want to ask you, where is God calling you to burn the plow? Individually. Where might God be calling you to burn the plow. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe that commitment has been kind of shaky. You know, when Kathy and I got married, we had only one premarital session to cover money, sex, conflict, in-laws, parents, like goals, division of labor, expectations. I don't recommend that. I mean, we needed a lot more than that. But at one point, the guy who was counseling us asked, what will you do if you wake up one morning and your feelings of love for each other have gone? And Kathy immediately said, I will honor my commitment. And that was the wrong answer for me back then. Um, The right answer to me back then was, you know, we are so special and our love is so magical (laughs) that the feelings of love, I mean, will never go away. They can't go away. They may for ordinary people, but not for us. I mean, they'll only grow more special every day. The idea that you would have to stay with me out of commitment is the wrong answer. And I let Kathy know it was the wrong answer by pouting. I think I have the spiritual gift of pouting. If I was a superhero, it would be my superpower. Um, And, you know, it's been more than once in our marriage that it's caused damage to our marriage um, over the years. But Kathy has kept loving me. Do you know how? She's honored her commitment. Now, honoring your commitment in a marriage doesn't mean I'm going to be a martyr, I'm just going to uh, just give in to the fact that this is just going to be really hard. It doesn't mean saying, you know, what a noble human being I am to con- continue to endure a powder like you. No, it's, it's a thousand little commitments that are powered by God. It's listening It's giving, it's fighting honestly, it's making up. You know, I'm not going to go on the internet where I shouldn't be. I'm not going to go flirting. I'm not going to escape to a bottle or to a screen. I made a promise, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. I'll burn the plow. If you're married, have you burned the plow? Or maybe God is calling you to burn the plow with your children You know, in a wedding, you stand before all of your friends and family and before God, and you make a commitment out loud. When a child arrives, you don't have to make a commitment to get them. I mean, you just get them. They just show up. (laughs) But there's a commitment there. Children come with a little commitment attached, and it's supposed to be fulfilled by parents. And more than any other relationship, I think the parent-child relationship comes with a little clause attached to it that says, no matter what. I will be there for you no matter what. I will love you no matter what. I will equip you for life no matter what. I will feed you. I will read to you. I'll teach you how to throw. I'll teach you how to ride a bike. I'll teach you about friends and about work and about love and about men and women and about money. I'll teach you what's right and what's wrong. I'll teach you about God. And when it comes time, I'll let you go. No strings attached. And I'll do this whether you're genetically gifted or genetically challenged. Whether other people in this world think of you as a shining star or a failure, no matter what. Maybe your child is one of the brightest and best. 
gets wonderful grades, goes to the finest schools, embarks on a successful career, makes you look like a genius. Maybe your child will struggle, go through depression, reject your values, run away from your home, defy your God. When you enter parenthood, you take on this no matter what commitment, and you only get released when one of you dies. That's why the parent-child commitment is most like God's commitment to us. It never ends, never fails, no matter what. I was reading a book about corporate mission that had an interesting statement, and you hear this a lot in our day. The author said, the corporation has become in our day what the family used to be 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I just want to say, no, it hasn't. You see, in a company, if you get a pink slip and go to your supervisor and say, hey, you can't do this to me, I'm family, and they'll say, no, you used to be family, now you're fired. Like in a good family, you can't get fired. That's one of the differences between a family and a company. You might want to write that one down. You see, what makes a family a family is not the birth of a child. What makes a family a family is commitment. I'm your dad. I'm your mom. You might do anything. You might betray my values. You might defy my God. You might break my heart, but I'm still your dad. I'm never going to stop loving you. Maybe work or disappointment or anger or busyness has been causing you to break your commitment as a mom or a dad. Maybe you've gotten a little lax on your commitment to help your child know God or to be a part of a spiritual community every week. You know, we have so many people who give their lives and energy who have committed themselves to creating a spiritual community for children and students in our family ministry at Blue Oaks. And for if your children uh, were a part of that, they would be in a little group uh, of people who know them and love them and help them to know that God loves them. To make a commitment, I mean, to put a stake in the ground to say every week I'm going to be here and I'm going to make sure that my kids are in a community like that. Maybe that's been getting loose for you. And maybe it's time for you to burn the plow. Or maybe God is calling you to burn the plow in a friendship. Now, I would say we all probably look for the same qualities in a friend. Uh, most of us want a friend who is committed to us, who is loyal to us, a friend who we can trust, a friend who will open up to us, a friend who it's just fun to be around. Friendship can be one of the most powerful forces in our lives. And a lot of who I am today is because of the friends that I have chosen and have given access to my life. Now, some of the readings I did this week say that the average time it goes from being an acquaintance to a deep friend is about three years. I mean, you invest yourself and your time and you take risks and you do whatever you can to treat those relationships with the utmost of respect and you cultivate them so that they'll grow. And I just want to talk for a minute about what I believe is a key element to a commitment in friendship. It's something that we don't talk much about, uh, but it's something that was modeled for us in the life of Christ, and that is a committed friendship has an element of challenge to it. I was talking with someone recently, and she was talking to me about a, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, she said this man reminded her more of Jesus than anyone she's ever met. And I remember thinking that was kind of strange because he didn't really remind me of Jesus very much at all. Um, so I asked her, what makes you say that? And she said, well, he's just so kind all the time. And so I challenged her to go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books of the Bible that are recording 
that have recorded the life of Jesus. And I said, just read through the Gospels and mark how many times Jesus was nice versus how many times Jesus challenged people. Now, was Jesus nice and kind? Of course he was. So many times. I mean, he looked deeply into the hearts of people. He forgave their sins. He loved them with compassion that was so strong, there were times that it moved him to tears. But you know what? If you were to compare all the times when Jesus was kind versus all the times when Jesus challenged people, you would have way more marks on the challenge side. Jesus had this ability to penetrate to the heart of where people were falling short, and then he called them to live above that. And you and I so desperately need that for our lives. The writer of Proverbs said, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend. When someone really loves you and you're in a close relationship with them, um, they can say hard things to you. And as hard as they are to hear, eventually when the sting is over, if your desire really is to follow God, part of you will nod and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. That's how I need to live my life. You know, some of us really need to start challenging our friends. Some of us know exactly where our friends are struggling. And like Jesus would, we need to challenge them to grow. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And to do this, some of us need to free ourselves from the need to be liked all the time. You know, sometimes we're so afraid that we're going to lose a friendship when we tell the truth that we just end up agreeing with each other. We just commiserate. Uh, we tell each other what you know, we think we ought to say or what we want to hear. Uh, we don't tell each other that uh, you know, our feelings and actions aren't okay when they're not okay, when they're actually being destructive. There is absolutely no hope of change in our lives without some kind of challenge this is being spoken into our lives on a regular basis. So how are you doing in your commitment with your friends? How are you doing at challenging your friends? That's part of a commitment. Do you need to burn the plow in a friendship? Or maybe God is calling you to burn the plow when it comes to a commitment to community. And the truth about some of you is you're isolated. Uh, No one really knows you. And a lot of people are okay with that. I hear a lot of people say things like, you know, I, I can believe in Jesus without going to church. You know, Jesus never commanded us to go to church. No, he didn't, but what Jesus called people to do was to enter into a life in community, to enter into real relationships, to go beyond superficial acquaintanceship, where there is someone who actually knows you, who knows all about you, who can challenge you and stretch you and comfort you and call you into the kind of greatness that God designed for your life. And you have to decide. You know, for some of you, I would say the most significant life-changing decision that you can make today is to leave superficial relationships and say, I'm going to seek to enter into real community. It's one of the reasons we're so committed as a church to having small groups. But all of us are not in small groups because there are barriers when it comes to commitment to community. One of them has to do with what it is that you value. Like, it has to do with the priority that you actually give to being in community. Because the truth about our society is we live in a society where we place a high value on producing things and achieving things and accomplishing things. And very often it leads people to not invest themselves into a church community. Because if you want to grow in a church community, it will require the expenditure of significant amounts of your time and your energy. And there's no shortcut to that. And maybe it'll 
feel like a waste of time to some of you. But I don't know how else to say it. Your commitment to a church community is a very serious deal to God. Maybe God is calling you to burn the plow when it comes to being connected in a community through a small group. Maybe God is calling you to burn the plow in your business commitments or in your financial commitments. You know, that's interestingly where this whole concept of commitment originated. Uh, I know a guy who has valued as much as anything in his life his commitments in business. Uh, He had business dealings years ago with men that he trusted, and these men turned out to be untrustworthy. And when the truth came out, he was nearly destroyed financially. Uh, It was the most devastating uh, vocational experience of his life. And in some ways, the consequences of that have been with him for a couple decades now, and it's ripped his heart out. And for a time, it left him wondering, can I actually trust anyone? And that goes on every day. Some of you are here today, and there's someone who made a commitment to you. Someone told you, you can count on me. Someone shook your hand. Someone signed a piece of paper or looked you in the eye, and then they broke faith with you. They violated your trust. Some of you have had your hearts broken because someone in the business world broke faith with you. And I just want to ask you today, will you have the character, character to say, even though I've been hurt, even though I've been betrayed financially or vocationally, I will maintain an outstanding standard of commitment keeping, just like God did, even though he was betrayed. I will place integrity above all else, even profits in my deal-making, in negotiating, in expenses, in supervising, in managing. I'll never make a casual commitment. I'll honor all of my commitments. I'll never say that I'm on top of it when I'm not. I'll not steal the credit for an idea that belongs to someone else. Even if other people break faith, my word will be my bond. Well, maybe like Elisha, God's calling you to make your life an act of service to him. To make your time and your talents and your abilities and your resources available to be used by God. You know, it's so strange how so many people who live for so much freedom get to the end of their lives and they can't remember what they did with all of the money that they were so free to make and spend. They can't remember how they used all the time that they were so busy protecting. They can't remember even what happened to all of those relationships that they were so free to exit. You know, in the end, where they didn't have to commit to anything, they ended up committing to nothing. You see, it's not in our freedom, but in our commitments that we actually find ourselves. You know, I'm the one who committed myself to my wife, Kathy. I'm the one who committed myself to my daughter, Lily, and my daughter, Amron, and my son, Ezra, and to my work, to my ministry, and to my God, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, imagine if all of us here were to be first-class commitment keepers, Imagine marriages where every spouse committed every day to offering faithful love. Imagine what kind of children we'd raise if every parent was a day-in, day-out, commitment-keeping mom or a commitment-keeping dad. Imagine how deep the friendships around here would go if they were all marked by loyalty and challenge, truth and caring. Imagine how God would be honored throughout the business community if it just became common knowledge that when you deal with a Christ follower, Their word is their bond. Imagine what this church would become 
If we were all to make the ultimate commitment a human being can make, the one that's worth your life and your death, the commitment to love and to follow this Jesus who is infinitely committed to you. If you're visiting today or if you're watching online, I just want to say something if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just thinking about faith, and I hope you'll consider this, I hope you'll think about the role of commitment and what a commitment to Jesus could mean for your life. I just hope you'll think about that, and I hope that you'll begin to explore that. And if you're a part of our church, if you're a follower of Jesus, I just have to tell you, I hope and I pray and I ache that we will be the kind of church that is just thrilled to be called to a total and outrageous commitment to Jesus. That doesn't just come here to hear, you know, God loves you just the way you are. It's okay that you go out and lead the same foolish life next week and then just come back next week and you'll hear it again. You know, God loves you no matter what. Now, does God love you no matter what? Yes, he does. But I hope this would be the kind of place where we would love to be called to this outrageous commitment to Jesus. Not because we're these noble commitment types or because we're better than other people, but just for one reason. It's because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And you know, Jesus himself is so humble that if a better way were to come along, Jesus would be the first person to say, take it. But a better way hasn't come for 2,000 years. And I'll let you on a little secret. Better, nothing better is coming tomorrow. So we need to burn the plow. All right, let me pray as the band comes to lead us in a closing song. God, I pray that throughout this series, you would help us to really evaluate our commitments. Our commitments to you and our commitments to each other, our commitments in business and our finances. And God, I pray that we would, uh, for some of us, recommit our lives in those areas. And I pray that you would lead us to uh, the kind of joy that we could experience knowing that we're doing what it is that you've called us to do. And God, I know some of us, even today, have been thinking about commitments that we've been maybe slacking on, and we need to burn the plow in those areas. So I pray that you would give us the courage to move forward and to just drive a stake in the ground and make commitments and to honor those commitments and keep those commitments. And I pray that you would shape us in, in so many ways throughout this series. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.